Thank you again, worship team, for leading us in the songs of praise of our Lord. I, uh, <clears throat> I just uh, told the worship team after our first service that uh, I love it when our worship leaders just choose songs that are just so rich in, in truths, truth, biblical truths, because even as I sit here and I hear the words, it is as if God is preaching to me the biblical truths, and they are telling me, Almost, these are the things I need to say to you. To, and, and I told them, I even had to add a few things into the message this morning because of the songs that we were singing. So I just appreciate the, the speaking and the singing of truth that we have within this church of Christ. Uh, we thank God for our, those, our fellow servants who use uh, their gifts in that way. Uh, so uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 93 this morning as we uh, look to the scriptures once again. Um, I have to admit that this this uh, sermon uh, really um, challenges and and uh, moves me in my heart because uh, it speaks to matters that uh, just are uh, often so grievous and it causes us to to mourn and and to weep and uh, in fact. Uh, <laughs> I felt like Jeremiah this morning as I was preaching this message. I was I think I was half, I was probably more weeping than I was uh, preaching. Uh, so if I do end up weeping, please understand, okay, uh, that uh, that this uh, this message, uh, in God's word, is meant to not just speak to us in our minds, but speak to our whole being, to to our hearts as well. And we should not only understand God's word, but we should feel God's word and its truths upon our lives. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Psalm 93. I used to tell people that Psalm is one of the easiest books to find in your Bible because you could just turn to the middle of your Bible, you'd always find the Psalm. So that's kind of the best thing about the Psalms. So right in the middle of your Bible. Flip there, you'll find a Psalm. Psalm 93 is where we look at this morning. In between series, we've just completed James, and next in about a few weeks from now, we're going to start the book of Isaiah. Uh, so in between the series of that I preach, I like to just preach a few messages from the Psalms, uh, because the Psalms are, are, are kind of uh, are, are songs or, or scriptures that, that speak to all sorts of circumstances in life. They, they address different circumstances, and they address us as worshipers of God, and they tell us that whatever circumstances we may be facing in life, we are to worship God. We're to focus on the Lord. we turn our thoughts to Him. And that's what kind of this morning's message does for us as we consider one particular circumstance. But as we look to God in the midst of our circumstance, that we look to him, the one who reigns. So we read Psalm 93 this morning. Psalm 93. I'll read it for you uh, as we, as you may read in your own Bibles. Read from the New American Standard Version. Psalm 93, the psalmist writes, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters. More than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your psalm this morning, your word, we pray that you would give us a greater picture of who you are. In the midst of our world and, and its circumstances, Lord, cause us to see that you reign. That you have reigned, you still reign, and you will forever reign. We pray that through your word that we grow in a greater understanding of who you are. That you are the true God. That you are Lord. And therefore, we owe you our obedience, our submission, and our worship. Father, we pray that through our time this morning... Even as we consider the rising floods of evil in the world, may you cause us to find comfort and courage in the knowledge of you. 
Lord, we ask these things so that your glory may fill the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've already spoken, the, the Psalms teach us to look at various circumstances in life. And that's what's great about Psalms. You can just preach them anytime, and they almost speak to circumstances that almost everybody in this uh, body would have experienced at one time or another. And as we come to the Psalm, the 93rd Psalm this morning, this morning's Psalm inspires us to worship God in the midst of the rising floods of evil in the world. As Christians, as followers of Christ, Sometimes we look out on our world and we see rising evil. We see that there is just seemingly an unending source of, especially because of the internet nowadays, we just see unending source of news of evil in our world. It affects not only us close at home in our nation, but it affects people all around the world. This morning, I... My thoughts have turned, are, are turned particularly to the rising of evil in our nation in this past few weeks, in this past month, really. A little over a month ago, as many of you probably read the news, in Charleston, South Carolina, a young man joined a prayer meeting in a predominantly African-American church and then proceeded to murder in cold blood nine people simply because of the color of their skin. And what that man did was not just an act of violence towards, and, and, uh, towards, other, towards other human beings, but it was an act of rebellion against God. This heinous act in God's church defied God as creator and giver of life. God himself has declared every human life to be sacred. Every human life is to be protected because each human life is created in the image of God. And so what that man did when he murdered his fellow brothers, not fellow brothers, but these fellow believers of ours was that he put himself in the place of God. He deemed that these people's lives were not sacred though God himself has said that they were. A second example took place one month ago, exactly one month ago, I believe, when our United States Supreme Court redefined marriage to include homosexual marriage. And by doing so, our our nation cast aside what God has instituted as a holy union between a man and a woman. And now we understand that anyone or uh, are very much aware that anyone who has the courage to say otherwise is declared a bigot, narrow-minded, and intolerant. Anyone who has the conviction to hold to their religious convictions in their, pra- in their practices, as, as particularly we've seen recently, in their business, and they make... With, uh, for religious reasons, withhold their services to, uh, for a homosexual marriage, we have come to learn that they are now lawbreakers, subject to fines, subject to closure of their business. Again, it is our nation putting itself in the place of God, contrary to what God has said. Then last week, many of you might have seen some of the videos that were out a pro-life organization released undercover videos of doctors for Planned Parenthood negotiating the cost to sell body parts of aborted babies. Uh, one video specifically talking about heads, livers, hearts, and lungs. It was a sobering reminder of how our nation protects the right to murder helpless lives are given no choice at all. We already know, we just mentioned earlier about the the sacredness of all life, but our God also teaches us to be protectors of the innocent, to be protectors of the helpless, to be protectors of 
the orphans, the widows, the aliens, the strangers, the needy, those who are lame, those who cannot speak, those who cannot walk. How much more innocent are those yet to be born? Cannot speak for themselves. Our nation is becoming more and more characterized by the words of Isaiah. Isaiah five eighteen. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These two months have been disturbing to us who are God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians in America. In the midst of these rising floods of evil, we, I, have been tempted to be discouraged, to think that where is God in this? Why, God, are you not doing something? How can you allow this evil to continue? Is he not in control of all things? And when we are tempted to doubt, question, despair, we do what we've always done. We turn back to God, right? We go back to his word. We go back to his word that will teach us all that we need for life, for godliness. We look to him for hope, for comfort, for courage. And it's for such a situation that our psalm was written. It speaks so appropriately to us this morning as we as a nation, as believers in a nation where we see once again the rising floods of evil. It's not the first time, nor will it be the last time. But it's coming, it's rising once again. But this psalm reminds us that God is in control. It reminds us However, we may respond to rising evil. We may respond in different ways, each of us. We may do different things. We may address that there at the end. But our first response, our immediate response, ought to be that we turn our eyes to God. That we look to God. We don't don't resort to violence. We don't resort to despair. We don't resort to hopelessness. But we resort to hope, faith, courage, trust in our God because our God according to the scriptures that we're going to look at this morning is a God that still reigns in the midst of the flood of rising evils this psalm is often classified as an enthronement psalm it's a psalm that describes the majesty of God's sovereign rule over all his creation and the providential care by which he sustains, controls, and directs all he has made. Unlike the other psalms that we, some other psalms that we find in the book, this particular psalm is anonymous. Not only is it anonymous, but as we look at the context and the verses within the psalm, there's no huge or key indicators of when this psalm might be written. It doesn't tell, say that this was written by David when he was wandering in the wilderness, or this was written by the Asaph and the psalm singers. Uh, in, in their worship of God, or doesn't tell us any details. But even this is part of the province of God. An anonymous psalm written in, in a sense, an anonymous time period, ultimately is a psalm that speaks to all time periods. It's a, it's a speaks truths that are timeless, though it may be nameless. It tells us, of God's reign. Eric is going to teach us about that God's reign, not only in the days of whatever the psalm was written, but it tells us that God's, God continues to reign today, and it gives us hope and encouragement that God will continue to reign forever. As we look to this psalm then tonight, we're going to look at a three-point outline, three points I want to bring out, that when evil rises, we find comfort 
and we find courage in three considerations of the Lord's universal reign. First of all, number one, we find comfort and encouragement as we consider the reign of the Lord. The psalmist writes about the reign, the Lord's sovereign reign over the world in verses 1 through 2. And particularly, he describes for us the nature of his reign, what God's reign is like. And God, what God's reign is like is a source of comfort and courage to you and me today. The psalm begins by telling us of the Lord's reign, of how it is an established reign. It's not something that is, uh, that is uncertain, that it's been, was here, was once here, but now is gone. But it's established firmly. It's settled reign. The scripture reads in verse 1, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength indeed. The world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Now, the phrase, it begins with the Lord reigns. And that's what we've been singing in all our psalms this morning. That the Lord reigns means that the Lord rules as king. I know for us uh, Americans... Kings are kind of foreign to us. Kings and queens and royalty are foreign to us. Uh, we think our, our kings and queens are like the Kardashians, you know, uh, what you see on television. You know, we, we worship them. We follow them like the British follow their kings and queens. And just kind of read all the gossip about them. But that's not what kings and queens are about. Kings and queens are particularly kings. Kings were those who had absolute authority. They, whenever they spoke, their words were law. And whatever they spoke, they spoke with authority. And whomever was under their reign was obligated to obey the king's words. And that's what a king is. And when the Lord reigns, it means the Lord rules as king. The Lord is a real king whose word is law and under which we are all obligated as his subjects his creation, to obey him. And though just like in the real world, not everybody obeys their king, not everybody in this world obeys the Lord our God. The world may believe in the existence of false idols and gods, but he alone rules as king. Now kings, particularly in, the, in these ancient days, were very easily identifiable. They were identifiable by their clothes. Nowadays, anybody with a you know a couple hundred bucks can dress like a king. Well, maybe I don't know. Just put on, throw on a suit, a tie, king, right? Maybe a crown, king. But in those days, of course, people were much poorer. They couldn't afford clothes. Most people just had one set of clothes. They couldn't afford many sets of clothes. But a king would have a special clothing that would identify himself as a ruler. And here it tells us that the Lord, him, God, is identified with king because he is clothed with two things. Not literally, uh, not literal clothing, but figurative clothing. Clothing of character that identify him. And we, we learn here that God is clothed with majesty and he is clothed with strength. Two things. Majesty and strength. Now what does it mean to be clothed with majesty? To be clothed with majesty is to be clothed with dignity or excellence. There is a, when we say one's, the majesty of God, we say that there is something about him. When we look upon him, it is clear that he is, is, is king. He has a dignity of him, an appearance about him, an excellence to him that identifies him as king. Even today in our human world, when we come across the world leaders, like I bet if President Barack Obama came in here, you would say, oh, he's just an average guy. You know, he might, he can't, he is probably an average guy. But if you come across our world, any of our world leaders, you'll find that they are in some way majestic. That there is a dignity about them. That there is something that stands about them in the way they hold themselves, in the way they speak, in the way that they behave. That's the nature of our world leaders. They stand out among leaders. But God himself stands out even above all human beings. Whereas our world leaders are imperfect. They, yes, they do have, a, our leaders have a dignity and we ought to show them respect with appropriate dignity. But our world leaders are imperfect. Our president's imperfect. We should pray for him too. But God, who is clothed with majesty and dignity and excellence, 
has no error or fault. He has no sin. God is perfect. He is clothed in majesty. When you see God, if you were to see God directly, you would recognize his majesty. It would cause us to immediately recognize there is nothing imperfect about him. There is nothing that we can say, God is guilty of this. God has done this. He's done that. He's, he's a bad God. No, nobody can say that of God. He is good and good alone. What's more, when we look upon God, God is not clothed with majesty and that is excellence and dignity, but he's also clothed with strength. God's reign is characterized by strength. God is not a weak king. He is a strong king. He is the one who has created the world. He has created all mankind. He's created all that we see in this world. Yes, he's even created that new planet that's Earth 2.0, you know, that we've heard about in the news today or this past week. Kepler 452b, I believe. <laughs> God is almighty. He's clothed with strength and majesty. And because God is clothed with strength, God is clothed with majesty and excellence and dignity and all that he does, it tells us that in because of that, the world that he has created, the world that he's made, and all that this, this universe, essentially, is firmly established. This world is firmly established. Oh, yes, from our eyes, things seem to be changing all the time, right? In our world, it's, it's changing all the time. The wind blows, and man, there goes my fence. Uh, the, the world's changing constantly. But God, because he has created this world, has also created and ordained the laws of nature. The laws of nature that do not change. Take gravity, for instance. It, it's the gravity that forces, mass pulls the other things. Okay, don't, I can't get too complicated. That's the extent of my science. But you know, gravity is everywhere in this world. And it just pulls us. And, 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 you know, God's laws are not limited, to, of course, just to the natural world laws. And by the way, because God created this world, that's why we can even have science. That there are laws and rules that are consistently exist in our world so that our human beings can actually observe science, make observations, make theories. But God also has established laws in this world that is firmly established that are spiritual laws. Laws that are, may not be measurable by science, but they are still laws nevertheless. The law of sin and death, for instance. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That when, because of the fall of man, Adam and Eve, when sin entered the world, it was a curse upon all mankind that we would die. And though mankind tries as hard as we can, we try as much as we can. We, we, all, we run marathons. I don't know if anybody ran a marathon today. You guys look pretty healthy, so you must have all ran or tried to run half. We all eat healthy foods. We eat, you know, farm-to-table food, right? We eat the best food there is. We eat, we, uh, we watch what we, you know, uh, that we don't just sit around too much. We kind of exercise. We, we, we do all sorts of things. We, we get surgeries. We have the best medical care so that we might live long, healthy, productive lives. And though despite all this, good, it's good that we do try to do these things. We all still die. Because the Bible tells us that God has established this world. It's firmly established that the wages of sin is death. That because of our sin, all of us are cursed to die. Physically, but also spiritually. Also be separated from God for an eternity in hell. That's the eternal death. This is what, these are God's laws. God has established these laws. They are the world, and that's why the world is firmly established. He is, and He rules over this world because through these laws which He has established, both natural as well as supernatural or spiritual laws, God's reign is already established, and there is nothing that man can do to change it. Psalm 96 verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. See, no matter what you and I can do or say, we can do all sorts of things and try to redefine uh, different uh, meanings of different words, marriage, life, race. We can redefine all sorts of things and say, this is no longer, this is not evil. This is actually good. But we cannot change God's established world order and laws. We cannot avoid his judgment. We cannot avoid death. We cannot avoid the things that God has decreed because he is 
clothed with majesty and strength. In addition, the psalmist not only has told us that the Lord's reign is established, but he tells us that the Lord's reign is eternal in verse 2. He says, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Now, the, notice here, just kind of sort of an aside, but it's a neat little thing, is that the psalmist has moved from speaking of the Lord in third person. He says, he, or God, Lord God, to second person here. He now says, your throne, you are from everlasting. And it's kind of a neat thing because the scriptures do that, or the psalms tend to do that, where he's just speaking about God, and all of a sudden he starts talking to God directly, praying to God, addressing him. And what do we do call that? That's, that's worship. That's praise. And that's what should happen to us as believers in Christ. When we study God, why do we bother studying God, right? Because when God is part of our worship, when we, the more we start thinking about God, we study about God, it should cause us to worship Him. I know sometimes, have you ever just kind of sung, we're singing the songs of praise, and then it just kind of, you say, I can't sing no more. I just gotta tell God right now. I gotta say, oh, praise you, Lord Jesus. You ever do that? I do that. I just don't say it out loud. Because, I can't help, but when I think about God, I have to praise him. And I hope you do that. If you want to say it out loud, go ahead. It's okay. Praise Jesus when you're worshiping. Because that's, the, that's, that's what the scriptures do for us. But that's what happens here, the psalmist. He starts worshiping the Lord. He starts addressing that's kind of just, And that's kind of a side, but it's just an observation. The psalmist acknowledges that the Lord's reign is eternal, he says here. God's reign is eternal. It's, it's not just something that... Uh, a lot of people would say that there's been some philosophers who said that God's dead and we killed him, right? Or that one, that's the old one. That God, but God continues to reign even today. Some people say God's not relevant today. God's irrelevant. In fact, we don't need God. In fact, a lot of people today are saying that we, as a society, as a world, would be much better if we would just get rid of religion altogether. All sorts of religion, all sorts of, uh, and, you know, I kind of agree with that in the sense that, you know, religion in general is man's approach to God. But fact is, we can't get away from the existence of God. God himself, we, we, cannot, we cannot continue without a knowledge of God, without, without the worship of God. Boy, that sounds confusing. Anyway, God has reigned from eternity. He's reigned from of old. He's reigned from everlasting. His reign is from eternity past. God has been reigning over the world before you and I were born before America ever existed, before Christ was born, before Abraham was called, before the creation of man and the world, God already was reigning. And that should comfort us. It gives us encouragement because God was, 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 reigning, throughout, is, was reigning through all these times and even today. He who is eternal God has always reigned and will always reign. And Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. To be God is to be sovereign. And God has been God from everlasting to everlasting. It tells us that he, the scripture tells us that he's been sovereign in control of all things from, ever, from eternity past to, to this day. And he'll be in control into the future. And because of his eternal reign, his eternal decrees are still in effect because he's God. That what he has decreed that is right, is good, is still good even till this day. And it's so kind of, it's sort of comical, but yet not so because it's so painful in its effect upon our world. Is that man who lives 70 or 80 years deems to make himself God. When we declare God's laws void, and we declare our laws to be true. What's one such one such claim has been in the area of gay marriage, recognized now as legal marriage within our country. But no amount of human lives will ever make gay marriage produce the intended fulfillment that God has ordained for male-female marriage. We know most of us are married. Male-female marriage, we're not perfect either. But what God has ordained for marriage is meant to be fulfilled fulfilled in that 
male-female relationship. No amount of social normalization will will ever make gay marriage reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. Because Christ and his church is pictured by a husband and a wife. I read, sadly, this week of a former president of ours, a respected president, in my opinion, who was a Southern Baptist. But he sadly said that Jesus didn't say anything about a gay marriage in the Bible. In fact, he said he believed that Jesus would be amenable to it. I understand when the world says that gay marriage is a right. But it saddens me, and I hope it saddens all of us, when Christians, those who proclaim that God is true, God's word is true, and then proclaim, go on to proclaim and say things that are completely contrary to what God has said. Did Jesus ever speak on marriage? Absolutely. And he defined it pretty well. Matthew 19, verse 4 to 5. Jesus actually is quoting the Old Testament here. He's affirming the Old Testament. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them, that is God, created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and the mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus affirms the Old Testament teaching about marriage, and so it makes it a New Testament teaching on marriage. Really, it's God's teaching on marriage that marriage is meant to be between a male and female. And yes, the Israelites messed it up. Yes, they did polygamy. Yes, they had all sorts of abominations within their marriage as well, just as you and I sometimes mess up marriage. But God designed marriage that it would be between a man and a woman, a man leaving his wife, father and mother, joined to his wife, and two shall become one. The Lord's reign is established from eternity to past, and no declaration or denial of man will ever change God's laws, for he still reigns. Steve Lawson uh, writes in his commentary that God has been the sovereign ruler since before the foundation of the world. His throne was long ago established, never to be overturned, usurped, or overrun. And that's true to this day. So this truth that God's reign is both established and from eternity past, eternal, should bring comfort to us in the midst of rising floods. And it does, I trust, for you and me. In verse 3 to 4, we take a look at the second consideration of the Lord's reign. And that is in verse 3 to 4, we consider the rebellion of the world. This psalm speaks of God's reign and how it is magnified in relation to the world's rebellion. The world is cursed by sin. And it should not surprise us when the world is rebellion. We are all part of that rebellion before we even came to know Christ. We are all guilty sinners. We all would did not want to do what God would have us do or what God would speak. We didn't want to believe what God would have us believe. None of us decide to do that on our own. Okay, so let's, let's even as we speak of these things, I'm I'm praying that I and you would continue to maintain an attitude of humility, recognizing that these are things that we can be guilty that we were guilty of once too. Rebellion, God, but God's reign is magnified in relation to this world's rebellion. The psalmist begins and describes for us, first of all, in verse 3, the mutinous power of the nations. How the, 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 the nations in rebellion and mutiny against God are, appear to us to be very powerful. Verse 3, we read, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. There's an imagery here in this verse, as well as the next verse, of waters, large waters, floods and seas and breaking waves are, are found here. And all these, and, in, and we learn here from this imagery, or when we look at the Bible and the imagery of these waters, the imagery of these bodies of waters used in the scriptures are often convey, figuratively so, the insurrection and the rebellion of the nations against God, against the Lord. Isaiah 17, verse 12 to 13 is one of those passages. The imagery here in verse 3 of the lifting of the flood's voice and its pounding waves pictures for us the deafening sound and the threatening power of the nation's rebellion. I'm sure many of you have been to Niagara Falls. Uh, I went there a couple years, well, 
well, yeah, it's 10 years ago now. But if you ever go to Niagara Falls, uh, I only got to the United States side, but I'm sure it's just the same in the Canadian side. If you're like right at the top of the falls, near the falls where it kind of just goes over the cliff, what will you notice? It's deafening, right? You hear this, whoosh, oh, you know, I can't even, you know, doesn't compare. It's just this huge amount of water that's just falling over the side of the cliff, and it's rushing along and it's just pouring down the bottom. And if you ever, you know, your tour concludes a nice little boat ride at the bottom and it goes to the bottom of one of the, one of the falls and you try to go right to the cliff and the water is just pouring down, crashing down the water. It is absolutely deafening, not only wet, but deafening. It is loud. Why? Because this is a body of water that's moving and it's powerful. And you were very, and it, honestly, it made me a little fearful as I stood next to that water that's crashing over. Even when I was on the boat, I said, well, I hope the boat doesn't get too close to the water because it looks pretty crazy, uh, as we get near. Because water is very powerful, right? Even if you just go to Ocean Beach, right? We go to Ocean Beach on a really windy day when the waves are just crashing down. What do you notice? It is loud. And there's a healthy fear in each of us as human beings to not get too close, right? Because those waters are powerful. It's a little bit fearful. Such pictures here of floods. And the floods here, by the way, probably refer particularly to the floods that were characteristic of the Euphrates River in those days. And in particular, the the Euphrates River was called, in fact, the first time the word river is used is refers to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The river, in fact, sometimes it's called the river. The Euphrates, that is. And seasonally, the Euphrates River would flood over. It would fill up with water, and it would flood. And it would fill this a huge, uh, um, I guess they call it a flood basin, plant, you know, a, a, few, a huge region. And this flood would then destroy cities, destroy towns. It would destroy crops. It could destroy lives. And it would happen every spring, every season. There would be floods. And the funny thing about the Euphrates was that it was unpredictable how big it would be. Some years, it would be huge. And some years it would just be kind of a small flooding. But the floods would always come. It's a kind of a picture even of our, of our world, the rising, the rising evil in our world today. You know, I hope that we do not get too discouraged by rising evil. That in a sense, it is just like the floods. That the world today, because it's under the curse of sin, there are going to be times where there, in our his, human history, in our lifetimes, that there are cycles of rising evil. There'll be periods of rising evil where evil seems to rule and reign over over our world. And there'll be some times where it just seems to be a, a little bit less. And some years where it's going to be even greater. This is not the worst of the evil in our human history. We've In our church history class, we've studied some times that were pretty bad, pretty evil. And I'm sure there'll be times in the future of human history where it will be more evil. And even less evil. But they're just like the floods. Mankind is constantly in rebellion against God. And there are just, these floods come and they are threatening and they are endangering to those who follow Christ. The world's godless ideas, values, and laws can have a similar effect that it causes us to be afraid. It causes us to be, you know, how many of us, I'm a preacher and I kind of, I, I've been thinking about uh, the laws with regards to, uh, with, with homosexuality, you know, with the homosexual marriage, I don't understand what's happening in Canada. And I hear that now in Canada to speak out against homosexuality is considered a hate crime, right? Hate crime up there. So if that becomes law here, will I continue to preach that homosexuality is a sin, the practice of homosexuality, among many other sins, by the way? Or would I be afraid? Would I be afraid for my family, for my daughter, for the church, and the repercussions that it could have for you and me? Yes, I'd be afraid. But it's when we're afraid that the God, our God can give us courage. I pray that we would have courage to stand for the truth when those times come. I think today, in our days, we are probably more disturbed by homosexual marriage. But I personally find the continued fight for abortion on demand to be the more frightening act of rebellion of man. 
it scares me the most because it shows a callousness on our nation's part for life. And I'm afraid that it will affect this church. It will affect us. I read recently that on average, 900 babies are aborted in the United States each day. 900 each day. 900 babies in the womb are aborted, terminated. Do you know the murder rate in our country today? On average per day, 40 murders. 40. 900 innocent, helpless, speechless babies are forcibly expelled, extracted, scraped, suctioned out of their mother's womb, ending their lives. And our nation and sadly much of the world calls it a right and glories in it. Oh, Lord, the floods have lifted their voice loud and clear. And the ones who are silent are the dead babies. Deceptively, Abortion is justified as a woman's fundamental right to do whatever she wishes with her body. And that the embryo inside her is not life, but is tissue. As Christians, we understand that no not as Christians, anybody in this world understands that no person has a right to murder anyone, right? So the only real issue when it comes to abortion is whether the baby in the womb is human life or not. The Bible is clear, though. The Bible is so clear. speaks loud and clear to us. There should be no justification from any Christian to say that the baby in the womb is tissue to be sold. The Bible says on life inside the womb that it is the same as human life outside the womb. For the same terminology is used of children inside and outside in the Bible. The Hebrew word geber is referred to as to an adult man in Exodus 10.11. But that same word is used to refer to an unborn child in Job 3.3. The Hebrew word yeled means a child in Genesis 2.18. Speaks of an unborn child in Exodus 21.22. The Greek word brephos that's translated babies in Luke 18.15 also is used of his unborn child in Luke 141 and 44. And the Greek word huios speaks of a son, an adult son. In fact, John the Baptist in Luke 3, 2. And it speaks of John the Baptist as an unborn child in Luke 136. The scripture, just by the terminology alone, speaks of the, ba- the child inside the womb as a human being, a human person, a life. On top of that, we don't have the time, but I would just note for you to write down Exodus 21, 22 through 25. Exodus 21, 22 through 25. It's there under the, uh, use, where it used the word yelled. And there alone, that passage clearly indicates that God considers the child in the womb of the mother to be life. But sadly... Despite the evidence of the Bible, despite what the Bible says, our nation rejects God's definition of life. It rejects it outright. Yes, we protect life when it's outside the womb, for the most part. But when it's inside the womb, it's fair game to be terminated. When I think about abortion, I read a, when I was reading about abortion, I read a, a quote. It was actually an older quote. It said, by the year 2000, so that's a pass already. More people will be murdered by abortion 
than all the people who were killed through human history's wars. Wow. We wonder, we may be tempted to ask, does the Lord not reign? How can he allow this to happen? Why, Lord? When we preach other psalms, I speak about the addressing of why. Why, oh Lord, why? Why do you allow this to happen? We may not know the exact answer. But as we look to verse 4, The psalmist comforts us, encourages us, that in contrast to the the mutinous power, the rising power of, of, of the world in rebellion, he shows us the mightier power of God in verse 4. It says, More than the sounds of many waters, more than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. The sounds of many waters reminds us of the deafening sound of, of the, our, the world's, our world's views and, and values and, and beliefs. The world cries out to us loudly these days. Don't you know? Gay marriage is about love, winning. Abortion is about a woman's health and about, in fact, quality of life for our whole society so that there's no unwanted babies. Don't you know if you believe otherwise, you're just simply in the Stone Ages. The mighty breakers of the sea, similar to remind us of the, the threatening power of our world. Our world is taking action. You refuse to sell abortion drugs at your pharmacy, a pharmacy that you own, by the way. I just read in the news recently. You are now again, you've now violated the law. You are required, mandated to do so. Even if it goes against your religious convictions to sell abortion drugs to, from your, in your pharmacy to those so they would have a, an abortion. You've, we've already heard about you for refusing to provide services uh, if you're a, to, to homosexual weddings or marriages, whether as a bakery uh, or as a, as a florist. And I can imagine next will be as a Minister, priest, pastor, who, are, who performs marriages. One is considered a, a lawbreaker. People, people are put out of business. Such is the power of the mutinous world. But more than their sounds, more than their mighty breakers, Scripture says, the Lord on high is mightier. He is more than that. The Lord is more powerful than the world. Amen. And, and yeah, sometimes from where I'm standing, it may not look like it, to tell you the truth. I look at the world, I say, man, Lord, why is this happening? And you, you, you're just tempted to start praying those imprecatory prayers until you realize that God wants to save people. He's not in the business of, of instantly killing everyone. He could have done that before, even before we came to saving faith. But from our limited view, viewpoint, sometimes it seems that God is not in control. But from God's standpoint, where who he where he sits on high, he is completely in control. He sees all of human history. He sees all that man does, and he orchestrates it. And he, yes, he ordains it for the fulfillment of his greater plan to show that he reigns. That even though mankind as a whole and ourselves, we include ourselves in that, please. We were all in rebellion against God. But God shows his reign that is not only established and eternal, but he makes sure that everyone whom he has chosen to the very last one will come to a saving knowledge of Christ, will experience his mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he will not come to judge those who rebel against him until that last one has come in, comes in. God is sovereign over the human nations of history. His plans are not thwarted. His precepts are still in effect. His power is not diminished. These nations that we fear, these governments that we, we may come to 
run away from. I can just think of the, some of the Christians in Syria today running away in fear for their lives. Just, I see pictures of them just practically just their lives. They're just running across the borders. Once again, to a great extent, they are so, we, no one speaks for them too. When we think about the mighty empires of this world, think of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, Greek Empire, Roman Empire, our church history class, the Holy Roman Empire even. All these have come and they've gone. All their laws have come and gone. All their values have come and gone. All their policies have come and gone. But who still reigns? The Lord still reigns. And that's a comfort to us. And to this day, our American nation is the mightiest, you could say it's the mighty empire of our day. It controls, it has, our nation has its hand upon all sorts of other countries. It controls them in ways and pulls strings and pushes things and makes things happen in our world. But even our world, our nation will fade away one day. And in that, and God's rule still, will still reign. He who sits on high sees all and everything is still under his control. Psalm 65 verse 7 tells us our Lord stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the tumults of his people. Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God rules over all. Yes, the rising floods of the evil in the world sometimes are pretty frightening. They can be scary. They can threaten us. But our God is mightier. His, he continues to reign. And he will keep reigning even when all these empires and these governments and these rulers pass away. We last lead to one last and final consideration of God's reign. And that is the revelation of God. The revelation of God. That God reveals himself in his reign. We see two characteristics of God that are revealed in his reign here. The psalmist reminds us and shows us God's character in his reign. Verse 5. He says, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And we see the first characteristic of God here is that is his truth, God's truth. Uh, this word testimonies is basically another word for God's law, for God's word. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. There's a parallel structure there, really equating the law of God with the testimony of God, of the Lord. And so the things that God speaks are the things that God testifies. There is testimony to what is true. God doesn't speak lies. He only speaks that which is true. He declares things that will come into existence by his word. He doesn't speak things that are false. And whatever God speaks is fully confirmed. It is sure They stand firm when tested. They are trustworthy and can always be counted on to be true, despite whatever man says. And what God speaks is true, and all who say otherwise are liars. God's reign is a reign characterized by his truth. Secondly, we see here in this passage that in God's reign, we see that his character of his holiness is also revealed. That this is God's moral perfection, his purity from sin. That God never lies, God doesn't make mistakes, God never does evil. He is always doing that which is good. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the vision of God's throne, we'll look at that in probably several weeks from now, maybe two months or so. The angels around his throne proclaim one attribute about God over and over. And it's not love. It's not his wrath. It's his holiness. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's holiness is the one attribute that is declared loud and clear in heaven right now. And that is the one attribute that is, that is most made manifest in our world, according to the angels. The world may call evil good and good evil, but it can never change anything. It cannot make good into evil, nor can it make, do the verse. 
for what, but what God calls good is and always will be good in our world. And what God calls evil is and always will be evil in our world. That is the holiness of God. Yes, man can change their ideas. Man comes up with all sorts of new ideas all the time, new ways of thinking all the time, ways to, 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 dis, dis, to excuse and, and dismiss our sin. But man will always come, man will always recognize God's holiness. For God's holiness is manifest in our world. It's in our very, He makes it even in our very own conscience. It's amazing that however you think human history has existed, it's taken to this day for mankind to realize oh, now it's okay. For marriage to be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Now it's the right. Now it's okay. Now it's a right now. Now it's good. But for 2,000 years and beyond, not just 2,000 years, but in the life of human history, throughout all cultures, throughout the world, throughout time and era, it's always been considered an evil. Yes, exceptions throughout human history, but considered evil. But God's reign is a reign characterized by his holiness. Now, if God's reign is characterized by truth and holiness, then how should that be made manifest in our world? Then we who belong to him, you and I, who believe in Christ, who name the name of Jesus Christ, we ought to be characterized by truth and holiness too. We ought to allow truth and holiness to reflect in our lives because we say the Lord reigns, right? If the Lord reigns, then he should reign in, in his people first, in our lives first. That you and I should speak truth. Let us be people who stand for and speak God's truth to the world, right? Let us be truthful. Let us speak the truth in love. Let us be people who strive, for in, who strive in the spirit to walk in holiness, to live holy lives, to be, so that our lives would be an example as well as instruments of God's reign in this world. That we would show the world what it looks like for God to reign. Sometimes the world may look at us and say, no, I don't want God to reign. That is their choice. But we hope, God has already said that, that God has already said that we would be a salt and light to the world so that then when the world looks at your life and mine, they would see truth and holiness and love and kindness and mercy and grace and all the rest of God's character and want to be under his reign as well. If the Lord does not reign in our own lives, we surely cannot expect him to then demand him to reign in the lives of others. If we allow racism amongst ourselves, if we allow immorality in our own marriage relationships, if we allow the abuse of our own children we are just as, no, as much as, if not more, we are more in opposition to God's reign than the one who doesn't even profess faith in Christ. The Lord reigns. Let's make sure he reigns in our lives, brothers and sisters. Yes, we may fail him, but God does not fail. And his reign will continue if we if we if we succeed in walking in truth and holiness or not. But his reign continues. And I trust as God's spirit is in you and me that he will make manifest in our lives more of his truth and more of his holiness so that the world may see him for who he is. So as we conclude then, two things I want to remind us of. Two things. As we see the rising flood of evil in this world, our response first and foremost is to guard from reacting. Number one is to worship the Lord. Number one, let's just worship God. Let us turn our attentions back to God. Sometimes I look at the world, I get all, you know, worked up. Uh, you know, I get all flustered. I get, I just get all, ah. Oh. Sometimes I get angry. But my first thought, our first thought, as we look upon the, the rising flood of evil, is like the psalmist would have us to do, is to turn our attention back to God. Focus on the Lord in this circumstance. He is still in control. Yes, things don't seem very nice. Some don't seem very well. Yes, uh, evil seems to be rising in our world. But God is still in control. 
and by worshiping him and remembering the truths that we've kind of reflected upon in the script song, we will know that God will still reign even when we're long gone, even when this world, this government that we know, this world, nation that's known as America is long gone from this world as well. God will still reign. People will still be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another common action that all of us can do to advance the reign of Christ in our world. Many of us have heard things that, I, that we've spoken about today, and you may re- react to the rising evil of the world in many different ways. God may lead you to react in different ways. Some of us maybe will respond to the rising floods of evil by becoming more involved in politics. Politics, get politically involved. Write your you know, president, your congressman, your, your mayor, your city councilman, your, you know, your representatives. You may, by all means, run for city council, okay, uh, if you wish. God has ordained government, and therefore, as citizens of this world, in a sense, citizens of this particular nation, you have, you have the opportunity and the privilege to participate in the political process. And that's a good thing. We should not de- remove ourselves from the political process of our world, because this is a democracy, so it involves all the people, not just some of the people, but all the people in this process. Some may do that, but not, others may not, and that's okay. Some of you may choose to then... Go protest, you know, go walk and protest, go boycott, go stand in front of, of some center or the, the, the mayor's office or something. Uh, some of you may choose to do that. Some may volunteer with a parachurch organization. And we think about abortion. We often think about crisis pregnancies or alpha pregnancy center, I'm excuse, is what it's called here in our city. You might want to go volunteer there, give counsel, provide help, donate things. Others of you will start blogs and start blogging. You'll go on the blogosphere, internet, and start debating and convincing others, writing well-written, clear, level-headed articles better than I can communicate with, I hope, so that the truth of God might be advanced in our world. His truth might be seen to be superior, might be reasonable for the people, for others to accept. But before all these things, before all these potential ways, and I'm sure there's many others where we can react. The one common action that all Christians can take to advance the Lord's reign, and this should be our first and foremost, after worshiping the Lord, that is to believe and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. This is the one thing that can bring true, lasting change in the hearts and souls and minds of man. Yes, we want to change this view, change the view on well, maybe... Uh, abortion. We want to save lives, right? We want to change, save people's views on, change people to think about racism. We want people to change the views on how they th- believe about homosexuality as a, though as sinful as that is okay. But before we even go to try to argue about those things, we need to change the heart of man, the soul of man. And that cannot come apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we as a church must faithfully, as God gives us every opportunity, and as we pursue opportunities even, to go and proclaim the gospel of Christ. We pray that we would then, as we proclaim the gospel, that God would then go before us and transform the hearts of those who hear, regenerate them, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Because ultimately, we can't change people's lives through the gospel. We can just proclaim it. But God will not change apart from our participation in the proclamation of the gospel. We have to go out there and share. We have to tell others. We have to tell our loved ones. And we have to tell our enemies about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our singular common action that advances the Lord's reign. And then we pray that Christ would bring about the change necessary. For his, he is reigning and he will bring about every single one to himself. He has already, he has, he has decreed from eternity past all who come to believe in him. And he will bring them no more, no less, every single one. But at the same time, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's do that. Let's respond to the rising floods of evil by worshiping God, by proclaiming Christ, in remembering that our Lord reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these truths. Thank you for sobering thoughts. And I know, Lord, that I've spoken some things that are not easy to swallow, not easy to accept.
And Father, I don't want your people here to just accept it just because I say so. Father, I pray for the people here that they would consider your word, your Bible, your truths, your decrees. That they would consider it prayerfully before you in dependence upon you. And Lord, that you would show them what is true, what is good. Father, we pray that we first, before even all that, that we, you would show to each and every one of us that you are a God who reigns. And that as we grow and as we are overwhelmed by that truth, may we ensure that we allow you to reign in our lives. May we live lives of submission, obedience to your commands, to your decrees, your truths. And then may we speak those truths, Father, to others. May we advance your kingdom and your reign through the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And then, Lord, after that, in addition to that, may you move among each of us as you will lead to use us to speak out for the hopeless, the helpless, to defend your truths, to fight against racism, to pursue holiness and truth in our world. Lord, that we would continue to be a voice, to speak good, to declare good that which you have declared good, declare evil that which you have declared evil, so that the people of this world may know that there is a God who judges that your law of sin and death is coming for everyone. No one can avoid it. And all, if they were to, are to escape, are to find it through faith alone in Jesus Christ, your son, who died on the cross for our sins, who paid the eternal penalty and punishment so that everyone, whoever believes in him, can have eternal life, can have their hearts and minds changed and transformed can know you as their King and Lord and God and Savior. This we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.